We'll continue our series this morning on unwrapping Christmas gifts, and we've looked at, at, uh, at joy and at hope, and today is peace. You know, it was Christmas Day. This coming Christmas Day will be 160 years to the day that the famous poet uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow penned the words to a poem entitled Christmas Bells. Most of us in this room have probably have never heard of that poem, Christmas Bells, but we're probably more familiar with the song that was written, uh, put to music about a decade later, uh, entitled, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Longfellow was 57 years old when he uh, wrote that poem. At the time, his wife, a couple of years prior, had died tragically in a fire. Unbelievably, her dress caught fire. And Longfellow himself wore a beard from that point on to hide the scars that he received from trying to save his wife's life. He was left as a 57-year-old widower with six children, one of whom had just been severely wounded in the Civil War that was raging at the time. He had heard the Christmas bells from the steeples of the churches back then, and he had heard people singing, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But what he heard in his, with his ears did not seem to match up with what he was seeing all around him when he looked at the pain and the suffering and the injustices that he observed. One of the more famous verses of that song says these words, And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Well, eventually, as the song or as the poem progresses, it becomes obvious that uh, as he's reflected, uh, even in the midst of pain and suffering and despair, he comes to the settled conclusion that God is indeed alive and that goodwill will eventually prevail. And so he writes, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now as believers, we affirm that. We believe there is coming a time when Jesus Christ will return and he will make all things right. He will create the new heavens and the new earth and all the bad things that have happened in this, uh, on this planet will be undone. Uh, Revelation describes that glorious time that we look for, that we long for, where there will be no more sorrow and no more suffering and no more sickness and no more pain and no more death. And so we cry, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We know that at the consummation of the ages, when Jesus comes again, he will right all of the wrongs of this world. But what about now? What about the here and now? Because the passage that Melanie read for us a few moments ago, that declaration of the angelic host at the first coming of Jesus, not the second coming, but the first coming of Jesus. What do we make of the angels' words in verse 14 when they cry out, glory to God in the highest? And on earth, peace among whom with with, among, among men with whom he is pleased. We, we hear the King James Version translates it, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Uh, we saw that just a moment ago when we sung crown him, crown him with many crowns. It has that phrase. 
We hear it on one of my favorite Christmas songs that came upon the midnight clear. We hear it in, uh, in a Charlie Brown Christmas when Linus steps forward uh, to read this passage from Luke's gospel. And he concludes by saying, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. But what kind of peace are we referring to? Because that word means different things to different people. For Longfellow, uh, he was looking around at the results of a, of a nation being torn apart, being ripped apart by a civil, by civil war. But for some people, when they think about peace, they're not thinking about world peace. They're, they're thinking about personal relationships. They, they long for a cessation of personal conflict. For some people, it's, it's about the ability of having personal solitude. If you've got a house full of children getting ready for Christmas, you may be wishing for a little peace and quiet. Everyone's looking for peace, and yet there seems to be very little peace to be found. There seems to be no peace in the world as a result of the birth of Jesus. There's a war here. There's rumors of war there. Even as I speak, the Middle East is on fire. Crime is rampant in our own country. Homes are ripped apart by dissension. People are anxious. They're anxious over relationships. They're anxious over finances. They're anxious over politics. And so I ask you this morning, do the words of the angelic host speak to us in the here and now? And I say they absolutely do. They absolutely do. Because while the old King James translates verse 14 as peace on earth, goodwill to men, the newer translations make it clearer that this is not a universal peace for all people at all times as a result of the birth of Jesus. Rather, it's a peace that occurs among those with whom the Lord is pleased. So then that begs the question, when the angelic host proclaimed these words at the birth of Jesus, what exactly did they mean? What kind of peace comes as a result of pleasing the Lord, and how do we even do that? So I want to suggest three things this morning, three types of peace that occur as a result of the birth of Jesus that we can have in the here and now. And this, is a very, this is not an earth-shattering message. You may not learn anything new, but I hope at the very least each of us are reminded of some important truths this morning. For some of you, it has eternal implications. Because the very first and foremost type of peace that the angels sang about was peace with God. Peace with God. We yearn for peace in our world. We, we long for that feeling of peace with our, within our own hearts and lives. But the foundation of the peace that the angelic host proclaimed and announced that night is having peace with God. And I think the key uh, is found by the announcement of the angel up in verse 11. Who, who came and he said these words, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a, what? A savior, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The angels made it clear that this was no ordinary birth. Angels don't make special appearances for the birth of just anyone. If you're about to give birth recently in, in the near future and you come to me and tell me that an angel appeared to you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna refer you to someone. Uh, for some for some help because angels just don't they just don't make a special appearance for the birth of just anyone this, this was not just another baby this was God in the flesh and so the Bible says the angels say a savior has been born to you now the implication if he says the savior has been born the implication is that we need a savior is that we need a savior and that's exactly what the Bible teaches why? Why? Why do we need a Savior? Because the Bible says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. 
And because of that, the Bible says we are under the wrath of God. We're at war. If you don't know Jesus, you're at war with God. You might say, well, I don't feel like I'm at war, but it doesn't matter how you feel. It matters what God says. God says we are at war with him. Romans 5.10 says that we're enemies of God. We're enemies of God. Why? Because we're not born in a neutral spiritual condition. We're not born in a neutral spiritual condition. And then we choose at some point which direction we go. The Bible says we are born in sin. We are dead in our trespasses. That's why people sin. They, people don't become sinners when they sin. They sin because they're sinners. They're sinners by birth. And, and, and Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Wages are that which we have earned. They, it is rightfully ours. Surely you would admit this morning that you've not been perfect in your life. Surely you would admit that you have, you have done things that you regret, things that God would call sin. And the Bible says the wages of that sin is death. But praise the Lord, it doesn't end there, right? The rest of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Bible is very clear. We have a sin problem, and the Bible says that the only solution for that sin problem is Jesus. Because unlike us, Jesus lived a sinless life. He's the only one who's ever lived a sinless life. And so when he died on the cross, what was he dying for? He was dying for sins. He was dying for sins that he did not commit. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You say that makes no sense. It makes no sense that God would love us that much. You see, God is a holy God. A lot of people want to talk about the love of God, but they, they neglect or ignore the holiness and the justness of God. And because he is a holy God, because he is a just God, he cannot ignore what he calls sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug or pretend that it doesn't exist. But, it, but he also loves us so much that he gave us the gift of his son. And Jesus willingly paid the penalty for our sins. Colossians 1 verse 20 says it this way, that it was the Father's good pleasure through him, Jesus, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having done what? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. You only make peace with someone that you've been at war with previously. Turn over to Romans 5.1 or you'll see it on the screen because the Bible, uh, I, I believe that the best way to interpret Scripture is with, with Scripture. And Romans 5.1 says it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified through faith the result is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the angels were coming to announce that night. And, and ladies and gentlemen, what I want us to see this morning is that the kind of peace referred to is here is not, first and foremost, a feeling. The, having peace with God is not a feeling. It is a verdict. It is a declaration by the Lord. It's an objective reality it is something that the Lord declares to be true about you and me. He declares us justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And so when the God looks at me, he no longer sees my sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus that has paid the penalty for my sin. 
He sees the righteousness of Jesus has been applied. It's been credited to my account is what Paul says. It's a banking term. My spiritual bank account was empty. I brought nothing to the table. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing with which to lay at the feet of Jesus that makes us worthy. We are spiritually bankrupt, but Jesus filled my account with his own righteousness. And it's a reminder of why Jesus came. He came to make sinners right with God. Five different times in the New Testament where God is referred to as the God of peace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus himself is our peace. He is our peace. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says Jesus, the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. There can be no true peace without Jesus. That's why he came. He came to bring peace between God and man. You may be here this morning and you may be thinking, I can't have peace with God. I'm, I'm too bad of a person. Pastor, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know the places I've been, the people I've hurt. There are people who legitimately feel that way about themselves. But I'll tell you what my observation is uh, as I look at our culture today, I think that the overarching view in our, in our society is just the opposite. The prevailing worldview in our country today seems to be that everyone's already at peace with God. Because when, when people die and I go to the funeral homes, listen, in the life of a believer, it's true that when a believer dies, they're not suffering anymore. But I hear it at every funeral. Regardless of what that individual believed or the kind of life they lived, it's common to hear someone say, well, they're in a better place now. As if all that's required to go to a better place is to die. But the Bible says both of those mindsets are wrong. You're not so bad that you can't have peace with God, and you're not so good that you don't need peace with God. What Romans 5.1 says and what it's teaching us is that peace comes as a result of having been justified, how? By faith. By faith. That's how we have peace with God. It's not something that automatically happens. It doesn't happen because you're a nice person or a good neighbor. It doesn't occur because you're a member of a church or because you've been baptized. Those things don't cause you to have peace with God. Those are things we should do to, to demonstrate that we already have peace with God. It happens. How does it happen, that peace with God? It happens when we recognize that there's nothing that we can do on our own to merit God's favor. And so we turn our lives over to him. We place our faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging that he is our only hope. That's why he came. If any other way would have worked, Jesus died for no reason. And he came to die. He came to do for you and me what we could never do for ourselves by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead to demonstrate his power over sin and death. Back in Luke chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that one angel, one angel announced the birth of this baby. But verse 13 tells us that a multitude of angels responded in praise to that announcement. It's interesting that it was the angels that night who were praising God and proclaiming glory to God in the highest. Angels who were part of God's creation, but who weren't created in the image of God. Angels who had done no wrong and therefore needed no forgiveness. 
And yet here they are, these angelic beings, not created in the image of God, not in need of a savior, and, and yet we find them on this first Christmas night praising God and glorifying him because the savior, Christ the Lord, had been born. I hope this morning that we don't become so familiar with this story that we lose the sense of wonder and awe of the love of God that he demonstrated when he sent Jesus to be born as a baby so long ago. Because if the angels rejoiced, how much more should we rejoice when we've received his grace? That's what it means to have peace with God. But secondly, one of the, one of the results of having peace with God is to be able to experience the peace of God. Peace with God is an objective reality. It's not a feeling. It's a declaration by God. But the peace of God is different. It's the assurance, the confidence that God is in control and that he's going to help you through the circumstances of life regardless of what those circumstances might be. Galatians 5.22 says that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the kind of peace that brings us comfort when you're sad or when you're afraid, or when life is full of turmoil. It's not the result of, of, of knowing the outcome of every circumstance of life, but rather it's trusting in the God who oversees the circumstances of life. It brings us comfort and rest because we live in the reality of God's presence. That as his children, God's spirit resides within us. Peace with God is an objective reality, but the peace of God is the peace that we experience in our hearts and minds. In my own life, when my family began attending church faithfully when I was nine or ten years of age, I, I remember a point where I, would, where, I, where I would lay in bed at night and I would worry about going to sleep. I was afraid to go to sleep. I wasn't worried. I was just flat out frightened. I was afraid to go to sleep because I was afraid of what would happen if I died. You see, I, I had no peace. I had no peace because I understood some truths. I understood that I didn't know the God of peace. I knew I hadn't been forgiven of my sin, but I knew I was a sinner. I felt that in my heart. I knew that I was at odds with God. I knew that Jesus had died so that my sins could be forgiven, but I was painfully shy. And for some reason, as a nine or 10 year old child, I thought the only place you could go to become a Christian was at the end of a church service when you came forward in front of all those people. And so I literally would stand at a time of invitation with my hands gripping the pew uh, in front of me and praise the Lord, he was relentless. He was relentless. Regardless of my shyness, my introvertedness, the Lord began to change my heart, my stubborn will, and he granted me a desire to turn from my sin, and he changed my heart. And in a moment's time, I had peace with God. Now, the wonderful part as well is I remember going home that night and going to sleep, and the key there is sleep. I remember going, I remember laying down that night and thinking, I'm not afraid to go to sleep. You see, I had peace with God, and the result of it was peace of God. And, and the peace with God always precedes the peace of God. And you see, the problem today is that everyone's looking for peace, but for most people it's elusive because they want it on their terms and not on God's terms. So they look for peace through alcohol. 
They look for peace through drugs. They look for peace through, through money. If I can just earn a little bit more money, I'll find peace. They look for it through human relationships, but it never brings ultimate peace in life. The problem is they want to experience peace, but they're not willing to surrender for it. They still want to do it their way. Guys, salvation is not like, uh, not like Burger King. You can't have it your way, right? You can't have it your way. You're going to come to God's, uh, God on his terms or you won't come to Jesus at all. I, I remember a particular Southern Baptist evangelist about 25 years ago. And his sermon posed this question, and this really was the entire sermon. He, he, it, 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 he, he posed the question, how many of you want peace in your life? There was no mention of really that I recall of turning to Jesus. There was no mention of surrendering to the Lord. There was no, no mention of turning from sin, repenting of sin. It's just how many of you want peace? And that's a valid question. We yearn for peace. We watch the news. We see wars in Ukraine, wars in Israel. We talk to our neighbors and coworkers, and we hear the struggles they have or perhaps that we have in our own homes and, and our heart cries out, where's the peace? But when the, when the evangelist posed that question and he, and he never took it one step further, the question that entered my mind was, well, who's going to say they don't want that? I'm sorry, preacher, I, I'd prefer not to have peace. No one does that. No one will say that. But the problem is, is simply that Jesus is not a genie in a bottle whose job it is to grant our wishes in life. He's a savior who wants us to love him, to honor him, and to surrender our lives to him. And the angels cried out, glory to God in the highest. God wants us to bring him glory with our lives by experiencing his grace, his unmerited favor. The New Testament writers understood this truth. In the Old Testament, the word peace was a common greeting, shalom. It was a common greeting in the Old Testament times. But when we get to the New Testament, we see something completely different. We see the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both using the phrase grace and peace. Or in the case of First and Second Timothy, the phrase grace, mercy, and peace. Paul used those phrases 13 times as he opened his letters. Peter used that phrase in both of his both of his letters, always in the same order. Grace first, followed by peace, and the order is important. They understood that until you've experienced the grace of God, there will be no peace inwardly. That's the message of the angelic host on that first Christmas night. Peace to those with whom he is pleased. Who is it he's pleased with? Those who have by faith placed their trust in the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand this morning that if the peace of God is your ultimate goal in life, you will never attain it. The peace of God is not the ultimate goal. The peace of God uh, is the byproduct, the result of the ultimate goal because the ultimate goal is Jesus. The ultimate goal is to bring him glory with our lives. And when we do that, the natural overflowing or outworking will be peace. And if we're not interested in bringing peace, uh, bringing glory to the Prince of Peace, we shouldn't expect to receive and experience that inner peace that only he can bring. Now, let me just say this, by the way, what it's not. Having the peace of God in your heart does not mean the absence of problems and pains. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Every circumstance. Notice that the Lord can grant peace in every circumstance. Not some circumstance, but every circumstance. That's why the Apostle Paul, who spent much of his time in prison, in a dark prison cell, with probably rats nibbling at his toes as his, as his hands and feet were in stocks and chains, that's how that same apostle could sing praises to the Lord while sitting in the prison cell. Years ago, I, I preached in a medium security prison worship service. I'd never been in a prison before, and it was an odd feeling when I entered that room and the metal doors automatically closed shut behind me and locked. And there was no guard that I was aware of in the room, and I had no idea what it would be like. I was a little concerned. I was so surprised by seeing the vibrant worship, the vibrant singing that went on in that room by men who had come to know the Prince of Peace while locked up behind bars. They were physically imprisoned, and yet they had a freedom in Christ that resulted in the peace of God, regardless of their external circumstances. Jesus said it this way in, in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that peace is the absence of trouble because he says as long as we're in this world, we've got problems. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is, is what occurs in spite of trouble. Peace is the result of keeping our eyes on Jesus instead of on our problems. Do you realize you, can't only, you can only focus on one thing at a time with your eyes? You can't keep your eyes on Jesus and be looking at problems at the same time. And so what's going on around us, it's important to us. It's concerning to us at times, but the peace of God is the result of keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, regardless of what's going on around us, resting in the love of Christ and trusting that he will see us through. How do we have that kind of peace? Well, first of all, if you don't know Jesus, you'll never have that kind of peace. But I know a lot of Christians who, at times, we don't experience this kind of peace. And, and, and one reason is because there are times when we're just simply living a disobedient lifestyle. When I sin, I rob myself of the peace of God because the Lord disciplines us by his spirit in order to cause us to hate our sin. We should hate our sin because it's, it's an affront to a holy God. But, but one of the byproducts of that is we feel guilty when we sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us. And so if we're walking in disobedience to what we know the Lord wants us to do, there will be no peace of God in our lives. But two of the primary ways to have that kind of peace is to simply allow the Lord to speak to us through his word and for us to speak to him through prayer. You, you, can't, have, you can't have the peace of God in your life as a believer if you're not in the Bible and if you're not talking to the Lord on a consistent, regular basis. 
Philippians 4, 6, verses, uh, 4, 6 and 7 says it this way. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request made known to God. And notice, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul says in those verses. He says that continual prayer is one way by which we have peace, even when our circumstances may not be what we would prefer them to be. If we would spend half the time that we spend worrying, talking to the Lord, we wouldn't need to worry nearly as much because worry just robs us. And I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself this morning because notice what he says the peace of God will do. He says it will guard our hearts and minds. Now, we guard objects or people in order to protect them from an enemy. Listen, in my life, between the attacks of the devil, the attacks from the world, and, and the attacks of my own sinful proclivities, my mind feels like it's constantly under attack, and you're probably the same way. And the result of that is discouragement, despondency, uh, depression, bitterness, anxiety, fear, all kinds of feelings that can keep us walking in defeat. So we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds. And I will tell you, there have been plenty of times in my life when I wasn't experiencing the peace of God. And I will also tell you this, it was never God's fault. It was never God's fault. It was always my fault. But there have been times, there have been times when God's peace was present in a way that makes no sense, humanly speaking. As Paul describes it in verse 7 of Philippians 4, it, it surpasses all comprehension. All comprehension. <clears throat> Two years ago, this past September, I had the honor of preaching my father's funeral. Now, it's something that I knew I would eventually have to do unless the Lord uh, called me home first. I knew it for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I'm a preacher and, and because there were no other preachers that knew my dad as well as I knew my dad. And so I'm not going to sit there and listen to some other preacher tell funny stories about my dad. And, and so I knew I had to do that. Um, but secondly, years prior, I'd been asked to preach a funeral for one of my mom's best friends. And so I drove down to Western Kentucky and when the funeral service was over, I, I allowed my parents to ride with me to the cemetery for the graveside service. And that was a big mistake on my part. Because as we drove up the, 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 the gravel road of the cemetery, I'm in my mental zone. And by that, I, I, I mean funerals are hard. I mean, they're hard for everyone. They're hard for preachers. They're hard mentally. Uh, they're hard emotionally. You know, at this point in my life, I've preached over 100 funerals. And they're still hard. They're all difficult. And they should be because if you, can, if you can preach a funeral and not be affected when you see that grieving problem or that grieving family, that's a problem. And so I was driving through the cemetery and I'm focused on what I'm about to say. And as we're approaching the graveside, my dad, who had impeccable timing, he blurts out in his Western Kentucky accent, you know your mom and I want you to preach our funerals one day. And for those that may have known my dad, you'll probably understand what I mean when I say I don't know why I was surprised that he would tell me that because my dad had a way of saying things at the most inappropriate of times. And I just kind of remember looking and saying, Dad, could I just get through this one first? 
can you let me just get through this one first before we talk about the future? So I so had known for years that that time would come, right? But two years ago, the time was, the time was Im imminent. And I sat in that hospital room with, along with other family members, and I knew it wouldn't be long. And, and what I had seen in the lives of others is sometimes when a family member passes away, even though you love them and knew them well, you're so, you're so grieved and so wounded that you can't think of anything to share with the preacher. And sometimes I will sit and talk to them about their family member and it's like they didn't know that person. Well, I know they knew them, they're just grieving. And so I feared the same thing would happen to me if I waited till dad passed away to try to write his funeral message. And so I sat there in that hospital room that day talking to family members on one hand and then going over into a corner with my laptop and, and writing my dad's funeral message at other times. And, and I just want you to know, when he went to be with the Lord, did I grieve? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I still miss him? I sure do. Dr. Betts talked in his sermon last week about missing his father almost every single day after 15 years. And so I understand that. I, I, I miss my dad. And yet, as I preached his funeral, there was a sense of God's peace that I just cannot describe. And... and that's why the, the Apostle Paul used the words that he did. He, he had no better words. He just, he just described it as surpassing human comprehension. It's the peace of God, and it's because of the coming of the Prince of Peace. Well, finally, peace with God should lead not only to the peace of God, but it ought to lead to peace with others. Jesus came to reconcile. Earlier, I quoted Ephesians 2, 14, where Paul writes that Jesus himself is our peace. But he goes on in that passage to make it clear that peace with God will also bring about peace and reconciliation with other believers. So he came to reconcile us to God. He came to reconcile us to one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 it says it this way, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, the reality is that sometimes things happen that are outside of our control. Sometimes things happen that are outside of our control, and the Bible recognizes that reality. That's why in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, the Bible says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Having peace with God will lead to peace with others as far as it depends on us. Sometimes reconciliation is impossible because it takes two to reconcile, but it only takes one to forgive. Listen, Jesus was born in a manger, died on a cross, sits on heaven's throne, and he didn't do all of that so that his children whose sins are forgiven can withhold forgiveness from those around them. John MacArthur has rightly said, there may never be more, we may never be more like Jesus than when we choose to forgive. I ask you this morning, is there someone you need to forgive this Christmas? Because by doing so, it would bring glory to God and it would bring peace to you. Because having peace with God leads to the peace of God and peace with others. But as Christians, an unwillingness to forgive others will rob you of the peace of God in your life. It'll take away your joy. It will rob you of your spiritual vitality. For some of us in this room today, as we approach Christmas, perhaps there's someone you need to ask the Lord to help you to forgive. 
For some people, family gatherings at the holidays is anything uh, less than joyous. I saw something recently online that says some families don't need to exchange gifts for Christmas. They need to exchange apologies. And I thought that's absolutely right. But for some of us in the room this morning, you hear the words of angels, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he's pleased. You hear the words, but the enthusiasm and the joy that the angelic host exhibited that first Christmas night is completely absent in your own life. One of my family's Christmas traditions is to watch the movie Elf. Most of you have seen that movie. It's, it's about a man named Buddy uh, who was accidentally taken to the North Pole as an infant and raised by Santa's elves. And he reaches adulthood and he decides he wants to find his own, his real father. And so he shows up in, in Manhattan as a full-grown man in his elf uniform. And he goes to work in a department store. And of course, everyone initially thinks he's out of his mind because he's talking about his friendship with Santa. And, and there's a well-loved line in the movie where Buddy is told by the department store manager that, that Santa was coming to the store to see the children. And, and, and with childlike enthusiasm, Buddy yells out, Santa here, I know him, I know him. They thought he was crazy. Let me ask you, that's a movie. Let me ask you on a serious note this morning. I say to you this morning that the Prince of Peace has come and he's coming again. Do you know him? Not do you know about him. Do you know him? Some of you are here this morning and you have no peace in your life and it's because you don't know the God of peace. I want to tell you this morning, you can have the peace of God in your life, but only if you have peace with God. You will come to him on his terms or you will come to him not at all. But he loves you. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of the angels this morning. After our service, there are going to be men and women in each of our lobbies at our welcome tables who would love to sit down and share with you how to have peace with God. And it doesn't matter your educational background. It doesn't matter your financial background. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what good or bad you've done in your life. The foot of the cross is level. We all come to Jesus the same way, by placing our faith in him and trusting him to be the Lord of our lives. Listen, Jesus was born 2,000 plus years ago for one reason. He was born to die so that you can have peace. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But Lord, as we, as we hear those words of the angels, we recognize that he came as a baby, but he died as a man on the cross, and he came for that reason and for that reason alone, to bring sinners to faith in Christ, to be reconciled to God. I pray today that if, if there are those of us who are here who have been robbed of your peace because of sin in our lives or a lack of our faith, Lord, Help us to keep our eyes on you. If there are those here today who have no peace because they do not know the Prince of Peace, what a wonderful Christmas present it would be to them if you would save them. Help them today, Father, to surrender their lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.